Section 20 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 11, Part 1. H. H. Rogers. Success is rooted in reciprocity. He who does not benefit the world is headed for bankruptcy on the high-speed clutch. H. H. Rogers One proof that H. H. Rogers was a personage and not a person lies in the fact that he was seldom mentioned in moderate language. Lawson passed him a few choice tributes. Ida Tarbell tarred him with her literary stick Upton Sinclair declared he was this and that. Professor Heron averred that he bore no likeness whatever to Leo Tolstoy, and he might also have added, neither did he resemble Francis of Assisi or Simeon Stylites. Those who did not like him usually pictured him by recounting what he was not. My endeavour in this sketch will be simply to tell what he was. Henry Huddleston Rogers was a very human individual. He was born in the village of Fairhaven, Massachusetts, in the year 1840. He died in New York City in 1909, in his 70th year. He was the typical American, and his career was the ideal one to which we are always pointing our growing youth. His fault, if fault it may be, was that he succeeded too well. Success is a hard thing to forgive. Personality repels as well as attracts. The life of H. H. Rogers was the complete American romance. He lived the part and he looked it. He did not require a make-up. The subcortex was not for him, and even the liars never dared to say he was a hypocrite. H. H. Rogers had personality. Men turned to gaze at him on the street. Women glanced and then hastily looked unnecessarily hard the other way. Children stared. The man was tall, lithe, strong, graceful, commanding. His jaw was the jaw of courage. His chin meant purpose. His nose symboled intellect, poise and power. His brow spelled brain. He was a handsome man, and he was not wholly unaware of the fact. In him was the pride of the North American Indian, and a little of the reserve of the savage. His silence was always eloquent, and in it was neither stupidity nor vacuity. With friends he was witty, affable, generous, lovable. In business negotiation he was rapid, direct, incisive, or smooth, plausible and convincing, all depending upon the man with whom he was dealing. He often did to others what they were trying to do to him, and he did it first. He had the splendid ability to say no when he should, a thing many good men cannot do. At such times his mouth would shut like a steel trap, and his blue eyes would send the thermometer below zero. No one could play horse with H. H. Rogers. He himself was always in the saddle. The power of the man was more manifest with men than with women, yet he was always admired by women, but more on account of his austerity than his effort to please. 
he was not given to flattery yet he was quick to commend he had in him something of the dash that existed when knighthood was in flower to the great of the earth h h rogers never bowed the knee he never shunned an encounter save with weakness greed and stupidity he met every difficulty every obstacle unafraid and unabashed even death to him was only a passing event death for him had no sting nor the grave a victory he prepared for his passing looking after every detail as he had planned trips to europe jauntily jokingly bravely tremendously busy keenly alive to beauty and friendship deciding great issues off-hand facing friend or foe the moments of relaxation chinked in with religious emotion and a glowing love for humanity so he lived and so he died an executive has been described as a man who decides quickly and is sometimes right h h rogers was the ideal executive he did not decide until the evidence was all in he listened weighed sifted sorted and then decided and when his decision was made the case was closed big men who are doing big things that have never been done before act on this basis otherwise they would be ironed out to the average and their dreams would evaporate like the morning mist the one thing about the dreams of h h rogers is that he made them come true give me neither poverty nor riches said the philosopher the parents of h h rogers were neither rich nor poor they had enough but there was never a surfeit they were of straight new england stock of his four great-grandfathers three fought in the revolutionary war according to thomas carlyle respectable people were those who kept a gig in some towns the credential is that the family shall employ a hired girl in fairhaven the condition was that you should have a washerwoman one day in the week the soapy wash-water was saved for scrubbing purposes this was in massachusetts and if the man of the house occasionally smoked a pipe he was requested to blow the smoke on the plants in the south windows so as to kill the vermin nothing was wasted the child born into such a family where industry and economy are prized unless he is a mental defective and a physical cripple will be sure to thrive the father had made one trip in a whaler he was gone three years and got a one hundred and forty-seventh part of the catch the oil market was on a slump and so the net result for the father of a millionaire to be was ninety-five dollars and twenty cents this happy father was a grocer and later a clerk to a broker in whale oil pater had the new england virtues to such a degree that they kept him poor he was cautious plus to make you have to spend to grow a crop you have to plant the seed here's where you plunge it is a gamble a bet on the seed versus the eternal cussedness of things it's you against the chances of a crop if the drought comes or the flood or the chinch bug or the brown-tailed moth you may find yourself floundering in the mulligatawney aside from that one cruise to the whaling grounds rogers pair played the game of life near home and close to shore 
the easy ways of the villagers are shown by a story mr rogers used to tell about a good neighbour of his a second mate on a whaler the bark was weighing anchor and about to sail the worthy mate tarried at a bar-room over in new bedford ain't you going home to kiss your wife good-bye someone asked and the answer was what's the use i'm only going to be gone two years half of fairhaven was made up of fishermen and the rest were widows and the usual village contingent the widows were the washerwomen those who had the price hired a washerwoman one day in the week this was not so much because the mother herself could not do the work as it was to give work to the needy and prove the jeffersonian idea of equality the wash lady was always seated with the family at table and besides her wage was presented with a pie a pumpkin or some outgrown garment thus were the christian virtues liberated where the grey mare is the better horse her mate always lets up a bit on his whiffle-tree and she draws most of the load it was so here the mother planned for the household she was the economist bursar and disburser she was a member of the congregational church with a liberal bias which believed in endless consequences but not in endless punishment later the family evolved into unitarians by the easy process of natural selection the father said grace and the mother led in family prayers she had ideas of her own and expressed them the family took the boston weekly congregationalist and the bedford weekly standard in the household there was a bookcase of nearly a hundred volumes it was the most complete library in town with the exception of that of the minister the house where h h rogers was born still stands its frame was made in sixteen hundred and ninety mortised tenoned and pinned in the garret the rafters show the loving marks of the broad axe to swing which musical instrument with grace and effectiveness is now a lost art how short is the life of man here a babe was born who lived his infancy youth manhood who achieved as one in a million who died yet the house of his birth old at the time still stubbornly stands as if to make mock of our ambitions a hundred years ago fairhaven had a dozen men or more who with an auger an adze a broad axe and a draw shave could build a boat or a house warranted to outlast the owner i had tea in this house where h h rogers was born and where his boyhood days were spent i fetched an armful of wood for the housewife and would have brought a bucket of water for her from the pump only the pump is now out of commission having been replaced by the new-fangled waterworks presented to the town by a standard oil magnet here henry rogers brought chips in a wheelbarrow from the shipyard on baking days here he hoed the garden and helped his mother fasten up the flaming flaring hollyhocks against the house with strips of old sailcloth and tacks there were errands to look after and usually a pig and sometimes two that accumulated adispose on purse lane and lamb's quarters with surplus clams for dessert also quahogs to preserve the poetic unities then there came a time when the family kept a cow which was pastured on the common the herd being looked after by a man 
who had fought valiantly in the war of 1812, and who used to tell the boys about it, fighting the battles over with crutch and cane. In the winter the ice sometimes froze solid clean across Buzzard's Bay. The active and hustling boys had skates made by the village blacksmith. Henry Rogers had two pair, and used to loan one pair out for two cents an hour. Boys who had no skates and could not beg or borrow, and who had not but one cent, could sometimes get one skate for a while, and thus glide gracefully on one foot. There was good fishing through the ice, only it was awful cold work and not much pay, for fish could hardly be given away. In the summer there were clams to dig, blueberries to gather, and pond lilies had a value. I guess so. Then in the early spring folks raked up their yards and made bonfires of the winter debris. Henry Rogers did these odd jobs, and religiously took his money home to his mother, who placed it in the upper right-hand corner of a bureau drawer. The village school was kept by an Irishman, who had attended Harvard. He believed in the classics and the efficacy of the ferule, and doted on Latin, which he also used as a punishment. Henry Rogers was alive and alert, and was diplomatic enough to manage the Malzian pedagogue, without his ever knowing it. The lessons were easy to him, he absorbed in the mass. Besides that, his mother helped nights by the light of a whale oil lamp, for her boy was going to grow up to be a school teacher, or possibly a minister, who knows. Out in Illinois, when the Wonderlust used to catch the evolving youth, who was neither a boy nor a man, he ran away and went out west. In New England, the same lad would have shipped before the mast, and let his parents guess where he was. Their due punishment for lack of appreciation. To grow up on the coast and hear the tales of the seafaring men who have gone down to the sea in ships is to catch it sooner or later. At fifteen Henry Rogers caught it and was duly recorded to go on a whaler. Luckily his mother got word of it and cancelled the deal. About then good fortune arrived in the form of opportunity. The young man who peddled the New Bedford Standard wanted to dispose of his route. Henry bought the route and advised with his mother afterward, only to find that she had sent the seller to him. Honours were even. His business was to deliver the papers with precision. Later he took on the Boston papers also. This is what gave rise to the story that Henry Rogers was a newsboy. He was a newsboy, but he was a newsboy extraordinary. He took orders for advertisements for the Standard, and was also the Fairhaven correspondent, supplying the news as to who was visiting whom, giving names of good citizens who were shingling their chicken houses, and mentioning those enjoying poor health. Whether the news did anybody any good or not matters little. The boy was learning to write. In after years he used to refer to this period of his life as his newspaper career. Superstitious persons have been agitated about that word standard and how it should have ominously come into the life of H. H. Rogers at this early time. When the railroad came in, Henry got a job as assistant baggageman. The conductorship was in sight, twenty years away, but promised positively by a kind relative 
when something else appeared on the horizon, and a good job was exchanged for a better one. An enterprising Boston man had established a chain of grocery stores along the coast, and was monopolising the business or bidding fair to do so. By buying from many stores, he could buy cheaper than any other man could, but the main point of the plan was the idea of going to the home, taking the order and delivering the goods. Before that, if you wanted things, you went to the store, selected them and carried them home. To have asked the storekeeper to deliver the goods to your house would have given that gentleman heart failure. He did mighty well to carry in stock the things that people needed. But here was a revolutionary method, a new deal. Henry Rogers's father said it was initiative gone mad and would last only a few weeks. Henry Rogers's mother said otherwise, and Henry agreed with her. He had clerked in his father's grocery, and so knew something of the business. Moreover, he knew the people. He knew every family in Fairhaven by name, and almost everyone for six miles around as well. He started in at three dollars a week, taking orders and driving the delivery wagon. In six months his pay was five dollars a week, and a commission. In a year he was making twenty dollars a week. He was only eighteen. Slim, tall, bronzed and strong. He could carry a hundred pounds on his shoulder. The people along the route liked him. He was cheerful and accommodating. Not only did he deliver the things, but he put them away in cellar, barn, closet, garret or cupboard. He did not only what he was paid to do, but more. He anticipated Ali Baba, who said, Folks who never do any more than they get paid for, never get paid for anything more than they do. It was the year 1859, and Henry Rogers was making money. He owned his route, and the manager of the stores was talking about making him assistant superintendent. Had he stuck to his job, he might have become a partner in the great firm of Cobb, Bates and Yerkeser and put Bates to the bad. It would have then been Cobb, Rogers and Yerkeser, and later H. H. Rogers, dealer in staple and fancy groceries. But something happened about this time that shook New Bedford to its centre and gave Fairhaven a thrill. Whale oil was whale oil then and Whale Oil and New Bedford were synonymous. Now a man out in Pennsylvania had bored down into the ground and struck a reservoir, a sort of spouting sperm whale. But with this important difference, whales spout seawater, while this gusher spouted whale oil, or something just as good. The year 1859 is an unforgettable date a date that ushers in the great American Renaissance, in which we now live. Three very important events occurred that year. One was the hanging of old John Brown, who was 59 years old, and thus not so very old. This event made a tremendous stir in Fairhaven, just as it did everywhere, especially in rural districts. The second great event that happened in 1859 was the publication of a book by a man born in 1809, the same year that Lincoln was born. The man's name was Charles Darwin, and his book was The Origin of Species, 
his volume was to do for the theological world what john brown's raid did for american politics the third great event that occurred in eighteen hundred and fifty nine was when a man by the name of edwin l drake colonel by grace bored a well and struck rock oil at titusville pennsylvania at that time rock oil or coal oil was no new thing it had been found floating on the water of streams in west virginia kentucky ohio and pennsylvania there were rumours that someone in digging for salt had tapped a reservoir of oil that actually flowed a stream there were oil springs around titusville and along oil creek the oil ran down on the water and was skimmed off by men in boats several men were making modest fortunes by bottling the stuff and selling it as medicine in england it was sold as american natural oil and used for a liniment the indians had used it and the world has a way of looking to aborigines for medicine even if not for health spiritualistic mediums and doctors bank heavily on indians this natural oil was known to be combustible out of doors it helped the campfire but if burned indoors it made a horrible smoke and a smell to conjure with up to that time whale oil mostly had been used for illuminating and lubricating purposes but whale oil was getting too high for plain people it looked as if there were a whale trust some one sent a bottle of this natural oil down to professor silliman of yale to have it analysed professor silliman reported that the oil had great possibilities if refined both as a luminant and as a lubricant to refine it a good man who ran a whisky still tried his plan of the worm that never dies with the oil the vapour condensed and was caught in the form of an oil that was nearly white this oil burned with a steady flame if protected by a lamp chimney rock oil in eighteen hundred and fifty eight was worth twenty dollars a barrel lumbermen out of a job turned skimmers and often collected a barrel a day becoming as it were members of the cult known as the predatory rich this is what tempted colonel drake to bore his well and see if he might possibly strike the vein that was making the skimmers turn octopi it took drake nearly a year to drill his well he met with various obstacles and difficulties but on august twenty second eighteen hundred and fifty nine that neck of the woods was electrified by the news that drake's folly was gushing rock oil soon there were various men busily boring all round the neighbourhood with the aid of spring poles and other rude devices several struck it rich but many had their labour for their pains one man was getting sixty-five barrels a day and selling the oil for eighteen dollars a barrel the trouble was to transport the oil barrels were selling for five dollars each and there were no tanks this was a lumber country with no railroads within a hundred miles one enterprising man went down to pittsburgh and bought a raft load of barrels which he towed up the allegheny river to the mouth of oil creek then for ten dollars a day he hired farmers with teams to take the barrels to titusville and fill them and bring them back the oil was floated down to pittsburgh and sold at a big profit stills were made to refine the oil 
which was sold to the consumer at seventy-five cents a gallon. The heavy refuse oils were thrown away. In 1860 began the making of lamp chimneys, a most profitable industry. The chimneys sold for fifty cents each, and with the aid of Sir Isaac Newton's invention, did not long survive life's rude vicissitudes. Men were crowding into the oil country, lured by the tales of enormous fortunes and rich finds. No one could say what you might discover by digging down into the ground. One man claimed to have struck a vein of oyster soup, and anyway he sold oyster soup over his counter at a dollar a dish. Gas gushers were lighted and burned without compunction as to waste. Gamblers were working overtime. The first railroad into the oil country came from Pittsburgh and was met with fight and defiance by the amalgamated brotherhood of Teamsters, who saw their business fading away. The farmers, too, opposed the railroad as they figured that it meant an end to horse flesh, except as an edible. But the opposition wore itself out and the railroads replaced its ripped-up rails and did business on its grass-grown right-of-way and streaks of rust. The second railroad came from Cleveland, which city was a natural distributing point to the vast consuming territory lying along the Great Lakes. John D. Rockefeller, a clerk in a Cleveland commission house, became interested in the oil business in 1862. He was then 23 years old and had $500 in the bank saved from his wages. He put this money into a refining still at Titusville with several partners, all working men. John peddled the product and became expert on pure white and straw colour. He also saw that a part of the so-called refuse could be retreated and made into a product that was valuable for lubricating purposes. Other men about the same time made a little discovery. It was soon found that refined oil could not be shipped with profit. The barrels often had to be left in the sunshine or exposed to the weather, and transportation facilities were very uncertain. The still was then torn out and removed to Cleveland. The oil business was a most hazardous one. Crude oil had dropped from $20 a barrel to $0.50 cents a barrel. No one knew the value of oil, for no one knew the extent of the supply. An empty barrel was worth $2, and the crude oil to fill it could be bought for less than half of that. At 21, two voices were calling to Henry Rogers, love of country and business ambition. The war was coming and New England patriotism burned deep in the Rogers' heart. But this young man knew that he had a genius for trade. He was a salesman, that is to say, he was a diplomat and an adept in the management of people. Where and how could he use his talent best? When Sumter was fired upon, it meant that no ship flying the Stars and Stripes was safe. The grim aspect of war came home to New Bedford with a reeling shock when news arrived about a whaler. Homeward bound had been captured, towed into Charleston Harbour and the ship and cargo confiscated. It was a blow of surprise to the captain and sailors on this ship too for they had been out three years and knew nothing of what was going on at home. Then certain southern privateers 
got lists of the New England whale ships that were out, and lay in wait for them as whalers lie in wait for the Leviathan. Prices of whale oil soared like balloons. New England ships at home, tied up close, or else were pressed into government service. The high price of oil fanned the flame of speculation in Pennsylvania. Henry H. Rogers was 21. It was a pivotal point in his life. He was in love with the daughter of the captain of a whaler. They were neighbours and had been schoolmates together. Henry talked it over with Abby Gifford. It was war or the oil fields of Pennsylvania. And love had its way, just as it usually has. The eyes had it, and with nearly a thousand dollars of hard-earned savings, he went to the oil fields. At that time, most of the crude oil was shipped to Tidewater and there refined. In the refining process, only 25% of the product was saved, 75% being thrown away as worthless. It struck young Rogers that the refining should be done at the wells, and the freight on that 75% saved. To that end, he entered into a partnership with Charles Ellis and erected a refinery between Titusville and Oil City. Rogers learned by doing. He was a practical refiner and soon became a scientific one. The first year he and Ellis divided $30,000 between them. In the fall of 1862, when he went back to Fairhaven to claim his bride, Rogers was regarded as a rich man. His cruise to Pennsylvania had netted him as much as half a dozen whales. The bride and groom returned at once to Pennsylvania and the simple life. Henry and Abby lived in a one-roomed shack on the banks of Oil Creek. It was love in a cottage all right, with an absolute lack of everything that is supposed to make up civilization. It wasn't exactly hardship, for nothing is really hardship to lovers in their twenties but separation. Still they thought, taught and dreamed of the bluefish, the blueberries, the blue waters and the sea breezes of Fairhaven. About this time Charles Pratt of Brooklyn, a dealer and refiner of oils, appeared upon the horizon. Pratt had bought whale oil off Ellis in Fairhaven. Pratt now contracted for the entire output of Rogers and Ellis at a fixed price. All went well for a few months, when crude suddenly took a skyward turn, owing to the manipulation of speculators. Rogers and Ellis had no wells and were at the mercy of the wolves. They struggled on trying to live up to their contract with Pratt, but soon their surplus was wiped out and they found themselves in debt to Pratt to the tune of several thousand dollars. Rogers went on to New York and saw Pratt personally assuming the obligation of taking care of the deficit. Ellis disappeared in the mist. The manly ways of Rogers so impressed Pratt that he decided he needed just such a man in his business. A bargain was struck and Rogers went to work for Pratt. The first task of young Rogers was to go to Pennsylvania and straighten out the affairs of the Pennsylvania Salt Company, of which Pratt was chief owner. The work was so well done that Pratt made Rogers foreman of his Brooklyn refinery. It was $25 a week, 
with the promise of a partnership if sales ran over $50,000 a year. How Henry Rogers moved steadily from foreman to manager and then superintendent of Pratt's Astral Oil Refinery is one of the fairy tales of America. Pratt finally gave Rogers an interest in the business and Rogers got along on his $25 a week although the book showed he was making $10,000 a year. He worked like a pack mule. His wife brought his meals to the works, and often he would sleep but three hours a night, as he could snatch the time, rolled up in a blanket by the side of a still. Then comes John D. Rockefeller from Cleveland, with his plans of cooperation and consolidation. Pratt talked it over with Rogers, and they decided that the combination would steady the commercial sales and give ballast to the ship. They named their own terms. The Rockefellers sneezed and then coughed. The next day John D. Rockefeller came back and quietly accepted the offer, exactly as Rogers had formulated it. The terms were stiff, but Rockefeller, a few years later, got even with the slightly arrogant Rogers by passing him this. I would have paid you and Pratt twice as much if you had demanded it, which you are perfectly safe in saying now, since the past is a dry hole. And they shook hands solemnly. Rockefeller ordered a glass of milk, and Rogers took ginger ale. Rockefeller was only one year older than Rogers, but seemed twenty. John D. Rockefeller was always old and always discreet. He never lost his temper. He was warranted non-explosive from childhood. Henry Rogers, at times, was spiritual benzine. End of section 20